Thanks be to see for uh, reading for us. Let me pray as we come to look at those uh, words together. Uh, Lord God, we've just declared speaking God, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you haven't hidden yourself away. Uh, you've made yourself known in the pages of the scriptures. Uh, you've made yourself known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us uh, this morning. Help me as I speak. Help us as we listen uh, to hear and to be obedient to what you have to say to us. Amen. Well, have you made up your mind yet? Have you decided who's right? Is it Cameron? Is it Johnson? Are you in or are you out? Probably some of you wants to come to church to escape all that, I'm sure. But it is, of course, the question, isn't it, that's facing all of us at the moment. I was driving back from my parents uh, just the other day. I was listening to Radio 4 in the car, and of course, it was all the referendum. It's the great question, isn't it, facing us. Do we stay or do we go? There's no middle way to the question. Uh, Whichever way we choose, the consequences are going to be long-lasting. Can't really get away from it. Are we in or are we out? It is an important question. It will have... Big ramifications, whichever way it goes. But actually, if we've been following Mark's gospel over the last few months, I think we'll become aware that there's another question that is even greater, even more important, and is also facing each one of us. It's a question that demands an answer. It's a question that has lasting consequences, depending on the answer that we give it. It is the question, of course, what will we do with Jesus? What will we do with this person, Jesus, who has been at the centre of Mark's gospel all the way through? From the beginning, Mark told us that it was a gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is, is, is asking us this question the whole way through. What will you do with him? What do you make of him? And what will you do with him and what he has done and what he says? Uh, Mark has been showing us who Jesus is. He gave us that clue right at the very start. Uh, He is God's son, he is God's king, he is the Christ, the promised king that the prophets promised. He has come to rescue the world from sin and death and to rule in the hearts of all of us. Nothing could be clearer if we've been reading through uh, Mark's gospel up until this point. But Mark is also clear that there's a response that has to be made to this man. Will Jesus be our king? Will he be our rescuer? Will we accept his gifts? Will we follow him as our Lord? Mark is drawing his story to a close. He's kind of gathering all the threads uh, together, as it were. Uh, And as he starts to do so, in this passage, he places sort of side by side two possible responses to Jesus Christ. I think he does it so that each one shows up the other one more clearly. He does it side side by side, as it were. Uh, And we're going to look at them together uh, over the next few minutes. And I want to to ask you to be thinking about this as we do so. Uh, Which one do you identify with more? Is it number one? Or is it number two? Which one do you identify with more? Because I think that's the question that Mark is asking for us this morning. And he's inviting us to think our way into the story and to place ourselves uh, in these two responses. Uh, Which one do you identify with more? Response one or response two? 
Well, let's have a look at them, shall we? And let's have a look, first of all, at the first response, which is this response of the religious leaders and Judas. And their response to Jesus was hatred. Their response to Jesus was hatred. I wonder if you've ever had to make a long journey um, on a fairly regular basis. I said this week we were visiting my parents. My parents live up near Lincoln. Uh, So we have a lengthy journey along the A47 and the A17. And if you're anything like me, you you measure your progress according to landmarks that you've reached. And we were driving back on, 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 the, uh, on the Wednesday night, and there's a point on, on that journey where I know we're, we're kind of, the worst of it's over. We hit the A17, and it's, it gets a long Sutton Bridge, and I know that, but some of you are nodding, you know it well. And there's that point at which you just think, you cross into Norfolk, you think, okay, we're, we're not almost there, it's another hour, isn't it? But in relatively speaking, we're on the right track. We're almost there. When a certain point's reached, you know that you're nearly there. And verse 1 is a little bit like that, that sort of landmark for us in this passage. It's Mark's landmark to tell us that we're nearly there. If you've been journeying with us over these last few months in Mark, you'll be relieved. We're nearly there. We're almost there. He tells us that Jesus' life is surely, shortly to come to an end. He marks it uh, with this reference to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're only two days uh, away. Uh, Mark is, is reminding us this is the, the great festival of the Jewish year, uh, the Passover. The Passover was the most important festival in the Jewish calendar. It was the day when the Jewish people celebrated God's deliverance of them from uh, the slavery in Egypt many, many centuries before. Uh, and as we're going to see in more detail actually uh, next week, in tying Jesus' death in with Passover, uh, Mark is highlighting for us that there's something significant going on here. He's also helping us to understand its meaning, because the Passover, in a way, looked forward uh, to the death of the Lord Jesus. But at the moment, I think it's just enough for us to to note that the background to all this is the celebrating and the feasting of the Passover. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would have been uh, walking around and entering into Jerusalem. Uh, They would have been preparing to praise God for his saving, mighty power that he'd shown to his people in the past. And yet, as Mark shows us here, at the same time, the leaders of God's people were preparing to kill his saviour. Astonishing, isn't it? The contrast could not be clearer. It could not be more poignant. As the people were praising God for his saving power, so God was at work again, and yet his people were trying to stop him. That's the uh, dynamic that we have here. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised, because actually right from the beginning of his gospel, Mark has shown us that the religious leaders wanted to silence Jesus and to oppose him. And we've seen that quite a lot of the time, actually, through uh, Mark's gospel. Uh, and with this offer of Judas that we see in this story, Judas was one of Jesus' closest friends and associates, uh, that, uh, that, 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 those plans that the religious leaders had are able to move forward uh, significantly. Up until now, uh, Mark tells us they've been, uh, they've been scared of acting against Jesus uh, because they feared that the crowds would basically lynch them. They would kick off. Jesus was very popular. Uh, if they made any kind of public move to stand against him, uh, they would, uh, there would be a riot and there would be trouble. But with the assistance of Judas, there's an opportunity for a secret attack on him. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Why were these religious leaders so opposed to Jesus? What was it about him that so inflamed their hatred of him? 
Well, it seems to me, as we sort of think about these verses and we review across uh, Mark's Gospel, that there were at least three reasons that stand out. Uh, They were reasons for the religious leaders, but I think in their own way, they are repeated in the hearts of many today uh, who stand against Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you recognise them. Uh, The first reason that the religious leaders opposed Jesus uh, was because they feared the reactions of others. They feared the reactions of others. In their case, it was the Roman authorities. At this time, Palestine was under Roman control. Uh, It was governed, they were under the uh, the jackboots of the Romans. Uh, The Romans never really understood the Jews. They realised they were a bit different to all the other people they'd conquered. They never really understood them, but they, they rather admired them in a funny way. And they let them basically get on with what they wanted to do insofar as they behaved themselves. They gave them quite a lot of privileges. They said that you could basically practice your religion as you want, providing uh, you don't cause trouble for us. Uh, And the religious leaders, I think, knew that if Jesus was allowed to continue his ministry, then that situation would change. Uh, Life would not just continue to remain the same. Uh, They knew that they would face the consequences from the Romans when it did. There would inevitably be upset along the way. And they feared the reactions of others. They feared what would happen if Jesus was allowed to have his way uh, in the world. I think the second reason was that they feared for their reputations. They feared for their reputations. Uh, These men, of course, were the the makers and the shakers of the Jewish community. They were some of the most important people uh, out of all of the Jewish people. They had power. They had prestige. They had recognition. They had security, they had influence, they had reputation. Uh, For them to turn around and follow Jesus would mean the end of all that. It would mean, really, a a humiliating public climb down, I think. Having stood against Jesus and having opposed him and said that he was wrong and going in the wrong way, uh, a blasphemer, to suddenly turn around at this point and to follow him would have been a very humiliating public climb down. They feared the loss of their reputation, I think. Thirdly, I think they feared the personal cost of repentance, of turning to Jesus in their hearts and following him. I think it was Time magazine in the United States who described Jesus Christ as the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness and love in the history of Western man. Pretty big statement to make about Jesus, isn't it? But I think anyone who has read the Gospels and studied the life of Jesus Christ could agree with that. Many people who, were not fr- who have not been friends of Jesus have acclaimed him as a wonderful man and a wonderful example of humanity at its finest. And we shouldn't be surprised because, of course, he is the Son of God in human form. He is truth and love incarnate, uh, as it were. But when we see Jesus, the thing is that when we compare ourselves up to Jesus, that exposes the rottenness of our own hearts, doesn't it? And I think that is what had happened here for the Jewish leaders. Jesus had exposed the rottenness deep down in their own hearts. He'd exposed the selfishness, the pride, the greed, the, the, the arrogance, uh, the legalism. He had exposed it all. He'd showed them that they needed forgiveness just as much as any of the other people in the land. Those who they claimed were sinners, the ones who were outside uh, the, uh, the, the Jewish religion. Uh, Jesus has showed them they're actually all in the same boat. All of us need his forgiveness and his mercy. 
And I think they couldn't face the consequences of bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and letting him turn their lives around. Three different reasons, I think, for hating Jesus Christ, for standing against him, and yet I think in their own way, each of them are repeated time and time again in people's hearts today, and I wonder if you recognise any of them. Maybe it's the fear of the reactions of friends or colleagues. If they find out that we're friends of Jesus... What, you're a Christian? Really? And suddenly our stock plummets, our friendships ended. Maybe it's that fear of our loss of reputation if we have to back down. Just this week, one of my friends on Facebook sent me an uh, article uh, by A.N. Wilson, the journalist, uh, documenting his uh, sort of return to Christian faith after many years of atheism. And one of the, the, the points that he made was how hard it is to, to climb down, effectively, having set yourself up as, a, as an enemy of the Christian faith, to suddenly climb down again, and particularly for a public figure, is a very, very difficult thing. It is difficult. There's a loss of reputation involved in that. Maybe it's the, the, the fearing the personal cost of turning from sin and following Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. I can well remember a conversation when I was a student. I was doing some uh, one-to-one evangelism. I had a wonderful conversation with another student. We were looking at Mark's Gospel, uh, and we were reading it through, and he was absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he died on the cross and rose again and was alive. And you're sitting there thinking, wow, that's amazing. Well, let's let's pray the prayer. Let's get started now. But he wouldn't. And he was very honest. He said, I'm not prepared to pay the cost. I like my life as it is. I like my drinking, I like my sleeping around, I like my life as it is, and I'm not prepared to give that up. And we just walked away and left it. He couldn't face the personal cost of turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ. These are harsh words, aren't they? Uh, Jesus said elsewhere that whoever is not with him is against him. Pretty stark, isn't it? Whoever is not with him is against him. Maybe we look at these religious leaders, maybe we look at Judas and we think, well, that's not me. I'm not that. I don't want to put Jesus to death. But if Jesus isn't our Lord, then we're effectively standing with them. It's the same attitude. If Jesus isn't Lord, then who is he? We're standing against him. And Jesus said that whoever is not with him is against him. To refuse to enthrone Jesus Christ in our hearts, in the rightful place that he deserves, is effectively to to hate him. That's the reaction of the religious leaders and Judas to Jesus Christ. It is hatred. Well, let's move on to the second response that we see in these verses. And the second response is the response of Mary. And her response is love. Her response is love. Uh, Against the background of the plotting of the religious leaders and Judas, uh, in the foreground we have this wonderful picture painted, don't we, uh, by Mark. This beautiful alternative response. Uh, The scene changes for us. Uh, Jesus has gone to the house of Simon the leper, verse uh, 3. We don't know who Simon the leper was. Perhaps he was somebody whose life had been turned around by Jesus. Who knows? Uh, We'll find out in eternity. Uh, They're in Bethany, uh, very close to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are gathering together to, to eat a meal. They're reclining at the table, as was the custom then. And suddenly the meal is interrupted by this beautiful, beautiful act of love. Uh, If we read St. John's account of this story, uh, St. John tells us that this woman is Mary. uh, She's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, 
uh, again, one of Jesus' closest friends and people who had a special reason to be grateful uh, to him. Uh, Palestine then, just as uh, now, it was a very hot, a very dusty place. It was very common for uh, people at feasts, guests, to be anointed uh, with some kind of oil or with some kind of perfume as a sort of mark of res- uh, respect or esteem. And in that sense, Mary's actions aren't, aren't really unusual. That, you know, this could be any old uh, feast, any kind of gathering of friends in one sense. But there are two things which sets this uh, particular anointing apart. Uh, for a start, the person doing the anointing is very different to who it normally would have been. Uh, normally, it would have been a task performed by the very lowest slave in the household. It was a pretty grotty uh, job to anoint someone with oil. They were dusty, they were sweaty, they were smelly. Uh, not a job that anyone wants to take on. Uh, but we're told here, uh, verse 3, aren't we, that a woman came in, this is Mary with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Mary takes the decision to do this herself. She anoints Jesus for herself. Uh, usually they would only use a few drops of perfume or oil. They didn't want to waste it, as it were. It's expensive stuff here. They use it sparingly. And yet Mark tells us here, Mary broke the jar and she poured it all on him. Uh, it was uh, so much that, uh, that the, uh, the disciples were astonished. It, they said here it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. This is expensive stuff here. It came from foreign lands. So it would have cost an awful lot to buy and to transport across here. Uh, this is a serious amount of uh, perfume and a serious amount of money that is involved here. It's an act of extravagant and sacrificial uh, love. It's a powerful demonstration of Mary's love for the Lord Jesus and her trust in him as her saviour and king. For her, nothing less would do than this act of love. And yet, of course, as Mark records for us, not everyone present uh, saw it quite in the same way. Uh, Mark says, uh, verse 4, some of those who were present were saying indignantly to one another, why is this waste of perfume? Uh, in the eyes of the disciples, what Mary's doing is a complete waste. Uh, she's throwing away uh, good perfume, money, perfume that could be uh, sold, it could, they could make money off it, uh, and in some way they could use that money. I mean, they, I think they're trying to justify their words here by suggesting that you can uh, use the, the, the money to, uh, to, to help the poor. I think it's false piety, uh, as it were, here. They just don't see uh, what Mary sees and the response uh, that she makes. But Jesus, on the other hand, sees it all too well, doesn't he? He sees right through what's going on here in this situation. Verse 6. Leave her alone, he said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Uh, He refuses to join in the condemning. Instead, he welcomes her. What she has done is a beautiful thing, he says. It's not a waste. It's not an extravagance. It's a lovely thing to do for him. It's worthy of praise, not abuse. What is it about Mary's actions that makes them so beautiful? Why would Jesus call this a beautiful thing? I think the most significant thing is that Mary has recognised who Jesus is and significantly what he has come to do. Uh, Jesus says in verse 7, The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. 
We don't know exactly how much she knew at this stage. But I think she clearly sensed that the time was coming when Jesus would no longer be there. She knew that the the mission for which Jesus had set his his life upon was drawing to a close. Uh, I think she realised that in some way it would involve death. Now was the time to uh, show this act of love. At the moment, this point in time, responding to Jesus in love and worship and sacrifice was even more important than helping the poor, as important as that is. As far as we can tell, Mary realised that Jesus was worthy of this action. He was worthy of worship and love. And the time uh, when that would be most fully seen in his death uh, was fast approaching. But I think secondly, Jesus says that her actions are beautiful uh, because in verse 8 we're told she did uh, what she could. In other words, she's given all that she can at that moment in time. She held nothing back from Jesus. Instead, she has given Jesus all that she has got. Uh, For her, it's this, the the most precious and valuable possession that she's got, this perfume. It's probably an heirloom that's been passed down uh, from generation to generation. She has given everything. She's shown her love for Jesus as much as she possibly could. And Jesus, in return, promises that her love will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. And we are fulfilling that promise today, aren't we, as we are uh, thinking of these words and these actions. Uh, I'm sure many of you will know the story of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary. He went to tell uh, the Hurani people in Ecuador about Jesus Christ. Uh, he ended up dying uh, there. He was uh, killed in a, in a, in a tragic, uh, tragic uh, uh, situation uh, in Ecuador. Uh, sometime later, his diary uh, was found, and it had these words that he'd written in it. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think Jim Elliot, like Mary, had grasped this response to Jesus Christ. He loved Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. And he realised that the sacrifices that Jesus caused him to make actually were nothing compared to the joy of knowing him and knowing his love and his forgiveness. Their response together was love for Jesus Christ. The sad truth is that many today would, would much rather hate Jesus than love him. They would much rather hold on to what ultimately they can't keep. They can't take it with them when they go. Rather than give it to gain what they will never lose in eternity. They would much rather hold on to life in their own hands rather than trust their life into the hands of Jesus. I asked at the start, which response to Jesus here best matched yours? And I wonder what answer you would give as we come to a close. Is it love? Is it hatred? Let me encourage you, make it love if you can. We know in full what Mary only saw in part uh, that evening. We can see that Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins to make us right with God. He rose again. He's alive today so that we can know, confess and serve him and know his love. 
And we can be sure that when we do come to know him, we too will be remembered, just as Mary was. Not now, not in the pages of scripture, but in the pages of the book of life, when we go to glory with the Lord Jesus. He will remember us and will welcome us into his presence. Uh, We will be remembered as well as his friends. Of course, there will be a cost to following Jesus. There always is, and we should be real about that, and we should accept that and be aware of it. There will be a cost. I don't know what it will look like uh, for you this morning. Maybe it's sparing the reproach of friends or family who cannot understand why you would want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They can't understand it, and they don't want to know you. That's uh, been the response of some friends uh, and family of some friends of mine when they became Christians, and it's very painful. There is a cost to that. Maybe it will be the leaving of old habits and old ways of behaving that are not pleasing to Jesus Christ, but you know that are incompatible with being his friend. That will have a cost. Of course it will. Old habits die hard, we sometimes say, and that's just as true uh, here as in any other area of life. Maybe it will be laying down our time, our money, our possessions uh, for Jesus Christ to use. That will have a cost for us. I don't know what it will be for you, but whatever it is, I I can assure you that it will be worth it. Uh, You will never regress it. It is a beautiful thing when we respond in love to Jesus' love for us. The wonderful love that took him to the cross on our behalf. There's a, a very famous hymn, and I'm sure many of you will know it, and it has a wonderful line to it. It says, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Never were truer words spoken than that. I'm sure that some this morning will be aware that the Lord is calling them to respond to that love for the first time. I'm sure there'll be people there who know that's true. And if that's you, don't walk away. Don't forget about it. Don't ignore that prompting in your heart. Come and talk to people. There'll be people here who'll uh, love to pray with you. There'll be uh, people standing on the door. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about what it means to respond in love for Jesus Christ. Uh, in September, this is a few months away, we're going to be running a Christianity Explored course here at Holy Trinity. Uh, Christianity Explored is a wonderful opportunity to explore again this question. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Why has he come? And what does that mean for you and for me? Talk to me if you want to know a bit more about that. It's a few months away, but that just sows the seeds for us. But my guess is as well, there'll be others of us here who are aware that we know Jesus, we have responded to his love, and yet our love for him is perhaps growing cold. We can think back to that sort of first fine, careless rapture when we first started to follow Jesus Christ, and the world was a wonderful place to be, and we would do anything for him. And yet now we're not quite so sure. The drudgery of the years has taken over. We're sort of keeping going. But actually the love really has grown cold. Let me encourage you also to come forward for prayer. To have your love rekindled. To look at Jesus and to be warmed in your heart again with his love. And to show you how you could learn to love him again and love him more. The best response to Jesus, the response that we should always give to him, is to love That's the decision, friends, this morning. We have a decision to make. Who is Jesus and what will we do with him? How will we respond? Will we love him or will we hate him? Let's respond with love. That is a beautiful thing, isn't it, for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, in our heart of hearts, we do know that we want to respond to your love, and yet we know that so often our hearts are cold to your love. And we pray this morning that you would meet us where we are, and you would show us what response that you would have us give to you. Uh, Maybe it is coming to you for the first time, saying yes to uh, your offer of love and forgiveness. Maybe it's saying yes to you again, asking you to come into our hearts to fill us with your love by your spirit, that we might love you more and serve you more fully. Uh, Help us, we pray, and help us to be obedient in the way that you're calling us. Amen.